Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. This is a bonus episode, and we are discussing the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the modern Middle East. Let's begin with a quick recap of the last episode. Hussein ibn Ali, the Sharif of Mecca, he was contemplating rebelling against the Ottomans. He was not at all pleased with the nationalist with the nationalistic turn of the young Turks. Turkish nationalism had in fact turned key turned several key Arab allies against the Ottoman government, and one of them was in fact Hussein's son Abdullah, who was now directly working with the British. Speaking of the British, Lord Kitchener, the Secretary of War, and his associates in Cairo, they mistook this um, Arab dissent or Arab displeasure with with uh, Turkish nationalism. They mistook this to mean a massive Arab uh, hatred against Ottoman rule. And so there were some Arab elites who advocated for Arab nationalism. And there were also some Arab leaders who wanted full independence from the Ottomans. However, the British took they misunderstood all this. Their most Arabs had no problem being a part of the Ottoman Empire. So with this false knowledge, Lord Kitchener, he came up with the idea I believe his full name was uh, Herbert Horatio Kitchener. He came up with the idea of establishing an Arab caliph. He thought the Arab subjects of the Ottoman Empire, if they knew that there was the potential of an Arab caliph, he thought that the Arab subjects of the Ottoman Empire would rise up against the Ottomans to to support an Arab caliph. Lord Kitchener, however, he misunderstood the role of the caliphate. He thought that the caliphate was something like a pope for the Muslims, where it's simply just a spiritual leader. However, the fact is that the caliph had always traditionally been both a spiritual and political leader for Muslims. So Lord Kitchener, he proposed this idea to Hussein ibn Ali, who was the Sharif or governor of Mecca. And by Mecca, this really means the Hejaz, because it included both Mecca and Medina and the region in between. Lord Kitchener, he presented this idea and Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, he indicated that he might be interested in this. But what Sharif Hussein wanted, what he expected was different from what Kitchener was offering. Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, he expected to be made king over all of Arabia and over all Arabs. Lord Kitchener, however, he only intended for him to rule on Britain's on Britain's behalf, by the way, over the Hejaz region of Arabia. But as yet, neither one of these two men really understood what the other really wanted. So now let's continue on with our story and we will now look at another part of the vast British Empire of the early 20th century, which was British India. British India, in fact, was one of the largest departments, one of the largest parts of the British government. British India, they didn't really care about the internal politics of Arabia. The British, in general, did not really care about the internal politics of Arabia. The British, 
they did very little about, they cared very little about what happened within the Arabian Peninsula. As far as British India was concerned, they just wanted to maintain the ports from along the Arabian Peninsula, going from the Suez Canal, going from the Suez Canal in Egypt, all the way around the peninsula, um, and and on into the Persian Gulf. They just wanted to make sure those ports remained open and free and available for British ships. That was the main concern about. British India. They did not care anything about an Arab caliphate or the internal politics of Arabia. The Ottomans controlled the Hejaz, which is the eastern portion of Arabia, but outside of the Hejaz region of Arabia, most of Arabia was ruled and controlled by local Arab rulers who had no allegiance whatsoever to the Ottomans. Many of these local Arab rulers, however, they worked with the British, and we'll get into that in a moment. The British, however, they controlled several ports, several seaports, basically, around the Arabian Peninsula. This was, of course, because British India wanted to make sure that this region remained safe for British ships, and what the British did not control directly, they indirectly controlled through several small Gulf state rulers, or Arab Arab rulers of several small Gulf states. However, British India was really spread too thin. Now, I know we say British India, you're, you're probably only thinking of the Indian subcontinent, what are now the modern countries of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, maybe Sri Lanka, Maybe, maybe, maybe Myanmar, but really British India, they controlled much more. Now, that's what that's what they directly controlled those countries in that region that we mentioned, the Indian subcontinent. Indirectly, however, they controlled a whole lot more than that. We mentioned this was the largest department within the British Empire. So if you think of it like like the British Empire, like a corporation, well, British India was the largest, most profitable, and most important part of this corporation. They were the iPhone of Apple. Think think of it like that. The same way that most of Apple's revenue comes from the iPhone, most of Britain's power came from British India. So British India was spread too thin once again, and they covered, they had controlled either directly or indirectly much of Asia and the Middle East. In addition to the Indian subcontinent and the regions we just mentioned, they also controlled Afghanistan, Tibet, Persia, modern-day Iran, as well as Eastern Arabia. We mentioned all those little small Gulf states that that they also controlled. So British India's reaction to Lord Kitchener's plan was not what Lord Kitchener was hoping for. British India, and think of British India kind of like a government within a government, okay? So we're on the same page here. British India, they were shocked at Lord Kitchener's proposal to Sharif Hossein Ibn Ali. They were shocked that he would offer this idea of uniting the Arabs. The last thing British India wanted was a united Arab state. They felt that this would be a direct threat to British India, to the Indian subcontinent. 
all of the British officials, in fact, in the Middle East, with the exception of those in Cairo and Khartoum. Remember, Cairo and Khartoum, which is the capital of Sudan, they were um, they were in allegiance or allied with Lord Kitchener back in London. We mentioned all this in earlier episodes. But all of the British officials in the Middle East and in British India, they were all united against Kitchener's proposal. And in their internal memos, they stated that the last thing they wanted was a United Arab State. What they preferred was several weak and disunited, ununited Arab states. They wanted a weak and disunited Arabia. So when Lord Kitchener suggested uniting the Arabs under one ruler, this was exactly what British India did not want. British India, they had connections with several of the Arab leaders in the region. We did mention this earlier. If there was anyone who was going to lead an Arab revolt against the Ottomans, British India wanted it to be one of their guys, not Lord Kitchener's guy, who was who who he was trying to make Lord Kitchener was trying to make Hussein Sharif Hussein ibn Ali in Mecca his guy, whereas British India they wanted their guy to be the one, and their primary guy was Abdul Aziz ibn Saud. If anyone was going to lead an Arab revolt against the Ottomans, British India wanted it to be the Saudis. British India, they had more insight into Arabian or Arab and and Middle Eastern politics than Lord Kitchener up in London did. British India, they knew that there were other Arab rulers and other Arabs who who would be suspicious of any sort of British-backed war against the Ottomans. These included several British clients, such as Sheikh Mubarak As-Sabah. He was the ruler of Kuwait. He was under British protection, but he was somewhat independent in a way. Basically, we mentioned this in, I think, early episodes regarding the... um, the Anglo-Afghan War, the 1840s. Uh, the the ruler of Kuwait, he had accepted a similar idea or similar agreement with the British where the British would handle Kuwait's foreign affairs and they would let him run his country's internal affairs however he liked. They didn't care if he implemented Sharia law. They didn't care about that. So long as he didn't mess with their money, the British were fine. Another person, another British client or potential British client was a man named Sayyid Muhammad Ibn Ali al-Idrisi. He was a powerful chieftain in the Asir district of Arabia. Asir was, at this point of time, at the time of this story, was still a part of the Ottoman Empire. And it's located in what's now modern-day Saudi Arabia, just northwest of the Yemeni-Saudi border. So Sayyid Muhammad Ibn Ali al-Idrisi, he was also a British client or in league with the British. Another person, though he wasn't necessarily in league with the British, he had communication with the British, was Sayyid Talib al-Naqib. He was the Ottoman governor of Basra. The British India thought he might make a successful ally. And finally, there was, of course, Abdulaziz ibn Saud, and we'll get into him in, in just a moment. Most of the Arab leaders in this region, they had no desire for a caliphate to rule over them. 
they many of them didn't really care who was the caliph so long as they didn't uh, mess with their internal affairs. And many of these Arab small Arab rulers who were really British clients, many of them really had no desire for a caliph or Muslim caliph to rule over them, Arab, Turk or otherwise. They really had they really did not want that to happen. There's another problem with Kitchener's idea for an Arab caliph, and that was the Saudis, the Saudis. The Saudis, who were primarily Salafis, and we talked about them in the last episode. The Saudis, first of all, they did not recognize any caliph after Ali ibn Abi Talib from 1400 years ago. Okay, they, according to the Saudis, at least at, least at this time, the last legitimate caliph was Ali ibn Abi Talib, and everyone after that was just pretenders. So, any anyway, that's that's uh, a political rabbit hole. I don't want to go down right now. We'll leave that one alone. Anyway, Abdulaziz ibn Saud, he was based in Riyadh and he was steadily growing his uh, his power base in Arabia. He was one of British India's closest allies in the Middle East. He was the one who British India really wanted to uh, lead the Arabs against the Ottomans. The Saudis were acquiring land and power in Arabia. The the Saudis, however, they were also enemies of the Hashemites. The Hashemites was the family that Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, the Ottoman ruler of Mecca, this was the family that he belonged to. So this is the, the craziness that, that was going on right now with the British. Lord Kitchener in London, he wanted Sharif Hussein ibn Ali in Mecca to join his side. The British in India, they wanted Abdulaziz ibn Saud to join their side to help the British, basically. Yet these two Arabs who the both sides wanted were actually at odds with each other because Abdulaziz ibn Saud, he wanted Mecca and Medina. He had no desire to be a client or be a subject under Sharif Hussein ibn Ali. He didn't mind being a client of the British, but he would not be a client of Sharif Hussein ibn Ali. We're not even going to go down that road. We'll leave that one alone. But British India, they knew that the Saudis would never accept Hussein ibn Ali as their ruler. Abdulaziz ibn Saud, he had even indicated before all this had happened, he had indicated and hinted that he was willing to accept British protection if they supported him in his fight against um, Sharif Hussein and the Ottomans. And he was even willing to accept a deal, a deal similar to what the ruler of Kuwait had accepted. But before the war, when Abdulaziz ibn Saud proposed this, the British were not willing to take it. British India didn't want to do this because they weren't at war with the Ottomans and they weren't trying to spark a war with the Ottomans. But now that they were at war with the Ottomans, well, their thinking was kind of changing. They would think, well, maybe this might be a good idea after all. So even though British India did not really want a war with the Ottomans, now that Britain was at war with the Ottomans, British India had to make the most of the situation. But be that as it may, British India really felt that Lord Kitchener in London and his uh, friends in Cairo, that they were really getting into some dangerous territory by proposing a united Arab state. The primary concern for British India, more than anything else, was how would 
a British-backed caliph affect the Muslims of India? Because a large portion of British India's population were Muslim, and they were really concerned how that might affect them if they, if the Muslims of British India found out that the British government overthrew one caliph and propped up their own caliph, uh, basically a puppet caliph, instead in his place. They were really concerned about that. So this led to a lot of departmental infighting within the British government. The government of British India, first of all, they were very suspicious of any other department within the British government encroaching on their territory. And this included the Secretary of War, Lord Kitchener. They, British India kind of really believed that the Middle East was their territory. They believed that this was their domain within the British Empire. If anything was to go down in the Middle East, British India felt that they should be involved in it and should be the one spearheading the effort. Now, they did see the benefit of acquiring Basra and Baghdad from the Ottomans. They did see how that could be useful, but they wanted to make sure that Anything that happened in, in the Middle East went through British India first. And so they did a lot of things to block uh, Kitchener from trying to establish ties outside of Cairo and Mecca. So government officials in British India, they really wanted to make sure that no other parts of the British government got a hold of any other part of the, of the Middle East and particularly the Arabian Peninsula. British India even went so far as to block British agents in Cairo from sending Arab spies into Iraq to um, to foment revolt or to start a revolt in Iraq. The British India, they were so adamant about keeping everybody else within the British government out of the Middle East. They stopped British government efforts at uh, sparking revolt in Iraq. In the end, however, the British in London and the British in Cairo, they really overestimated the power of the caliph. Lord Kitchener, he had this thing in his mind, but he had really overblown exactly what the caliph was. There was the Ottoman caliph after it was clear the Ottomans were going into war. And even though the Ottoman caliph and most of the Ottoman government, uh, not really most, the Ottoman government outside of the Young Turks, basically the Ottoman Caliph, the Sultan himself, as well as the uh, um, Prime Minister, the Vizier, they didn't want to go to war. It was the Young Turks who really wanted to go to war. But once war was inevitable and once war was thrust upon them, they had no choice but to go along with it. So the Ottoman Caliph, he put out a call for jihad against the Allied powers. He tried to turn this into a religious thing, even though they were allied with the Germans who weren't Muslim. But we'll leave that alone. The Germans, they went and printed leaflets with the jihad proclamation. They printed in both Arabic and Urdu, and they were spreading it around the Muslim world as best as they could. They were hoping that this call for jihad would eventually make its way into Britain. I'm sorry, not Britain, into uh, India and hopefully keep Muslim soldiers within the British military from fighting or maybe even turning against the British. The Germans were really hoping that. But the fact of the matter is only a few Muslims, very small number of Muslims outside of the regular Ottoman military, only a few Muslims really responded to this call for jihad from the Ottoman caliph. So even though this quote-unquote jihad by the Ottoman colleague, even, even though it didn't go anywhere, the British were still concerned that the Muslims living within British India 
might get riled up or might get agitated if they weren't very careful. So British agents in Cairo, even though they recognized that the Ottoman Caliph's jihad call fell pretty much on deaf ears, they thought that Muslims might react more if the Ottomans controlled Mecca and if they used that in their propaganda. I presume that they're thinking about how would Muslims react if the Ottomans decided to use pictures of the Kaaba and or as part of their overall war propaganda. And so many of them were really working hard because they saw, and this is kind of correctly true, they saw Mecca as the ultimate symbol of Islam, the ultimate um, ultimate heartthrob for Muslims. And so they understood this. And so they wanted to really get Sharif Hussein ibn Ali to turn against the Ottomans. However, once again, British India, they were very fearful that if that happened, if Sharif ibn Ali, I'm sorry, Sharif Hussein ibn Ali really did turn against the Ottomans, that this might agitate the Muslims of British India. And British India really had concern. They had reason to be concerned because they had really been weakened now. They had sent most of their military within British India. Most of the military had gone off to Europe to fight in Europe against the Germans and the Austrians and even the Ottomans and all them. So there weren't really that many soldiers in British India to handle any large-scale civil unrest in India or any sort of um, uprising from the Muslims within British India. So for British India, they were really more concerned about the activities of their fellow British officials in Cairo and in London than they were about the Turks and the Germans. And so that now brings us to Hussein ibn Ali, Sharif Hussein ibn Ali. So now the Great War, what we know of as World War I, this had now brought the city of Mecca, the small town, well, it was kind of small back then, it's not really small now, this small city in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula had now brought this city right into the middle of international politics and great world wars. Let's talk a little bit about Sharif Hussein ibn Ali. He was, as we mentioned, a member of the Hashemite family. He was also a leading member of the Hashemite family. The Hashemite family, they claimed to be direct descendants of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. They believed that the uh, well, Prophet Muhammad's his Prophet Muhammad's grandfather was named, the great grandfather was named Hashem, and their overall clan. Uh, that Prophet Muhammad belonged to, as well as his cousin um, Ali ibn Abi Talib, as well as his daughter Fatima, they all belonged to the overall large clan called the Hashim clan. And as I believe I mentioned in the last episode, I'm not sure how accurate the Hashimites claim to be a descendant of Prophet Muhammad. I don't know how accurate that really is, but they... For whatever reason, or however true it was, they did use the name Hashem, or the, the the tribal name of Hashem, as part of their propaganda and part of part of uh, proving their legitimacy. So Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, he was the Sharif of Mecca, which basically means the ruler of Mecca, and this was given to him. This authority was given to him by the Ottomans. 
as the Sharif of Mecca, he also had authority over pretty much most of the Hijaz. This included Medina, the other Muslim, the other important Muslim city. I don't want to say holy city because that's not really a phrase we use. So <laughs> that's a phrase non-Muslims use. Muslims don't really use the word holy city. But anyway, Medina is a sacred city. That might be a better phrase than holy city. Anyway, um, Mecca was part of the Ottoman Empire. The Hejaz was part of the Ottoman Empire, but it had always been relatively autonomous. They had always been able to, whoever whoever ran Mecca or the Hejaz, probably more accurate, whoever ran this region, they were pretty much able to operate independent of the Ottoman Empire because they were just too far away from Istanbul, from the capital. And because communications and transportation in the Ottoman Empire was so poor, this actually prevented the empire from centralizing power and from actually exercising any true authority over uh, the Hejaz. Sharif Hossein ibn Ali, he ruled Mecca by permission of the Ottoman Caliph, basically. The Ottoman government, whenever they needed a new ruler for Mecca, for the Hejaz, they would choose a local Arab leader to be the new Sharif of Mecca. And this current one, Hussein Ibn Ali, he was chosen in 1908. So as the Sharif of Mecca, Sharif Hussein Ibn Ali was also in charge of the Hajj. He was in charge of providing for the pilgrims and protecting the pilgrims, the pilgrims, because sometimes even even back then, even in this in the fairly modern time, there were Bedouin Arabs who would attack Muslim pilgrims coming to make the Hajj. Yeah, that stuff still happens. Well, it doesn't really. I don't think it happens now. Now we just have pickpockets and stuff like that. Anyway, continuing continuing on, um, the annual Hajj pilgrimage. This was the primary economic driver for the Hejaz region. This was the main thing. And camel merchants and camel herders, they were as they were an essential part of this economy because, as we mentioned, the transportation really wasn't that great in the Ottoman Empire at this time. Camels were still the primary mode for transportation in the region. And pilgrims, people making Hajj, they needed the camels to travel from Jeddah, which was the main embarkation point for those coming uh, from the west of Arabia. Jeddah was the main embarkation point. Camels were needed to travel from Jeddah to Mecca. Sharif Hussein Ibn Ali, he was loyal to the Ottoman Caliph. We want to make that clear. He was good friends and he was loyal to the Ottoman Caliph. He owed his position to the Caliph, to the Ottoman Caliph. However, he did not like the young Turks. Unfortunately for Sharif Hussein, the Caliph didn't really have any real power at this time. True authority in the empire, it was really with the young Turks. They ran the government. The Caliph, by this time, had been turned into pretty much a figurehead, and the the young Turks were they had a parliament. The, the Ottoman government government was pretty much a parliamentary government. True authority in the empire was with the young Turks. And as we mentioned, Hussein ibn Ali, Sharif Hussein ibn Ali and the Young Turks, they just really didn't get along. This was because one of the primary reasons was that Sharif Hussein, he wanted Mecca to be more independent. He wanted more autonomy. And the Young Turks, they wanted to bring Mecca and Medina more under Istanbul's control. They wanted to bring it 
have a more centralized government and make sure that these far-flung regions of the empire were more responsive and more under the control of the government in Istanbul. So Sharif Hussein, his primary goal, his primary desire was to secure his authority over the Hejaz, over Mecca, Medina, and this Hejaz region. That was his primary concern. Or more than anything else, just keep that in mind, he mostly wanted to secure his position. He also wanted to preserve this position. He wanted to, he wanted to be able to pass it on to his children after him. He was not a, a young man at this time. He's actually fairly old at this time. He had two, at least two adult sons. I think he had more than that. He had, had at least two adult sons, and we'll talk about them in a moment. So because he wanted to consolidate his position and protect his position in Mecca, he wanted as much autonomy and as much freedom from Istanbul as possible. However, the young Turks, they were doing everything they could to bring him more under their control, at least to bring the region under more under their control. So they be, before the war had started, they had begun building railroads from Damascus to, to Mecca. Railroads would make it easier for the Ottomans and for the young Turks to send soldiers and diplomats and messengers and all those sort of things down into Mecca. Everything they had to take weeks to travel by camel and horseback and stuff like that. So they began to build a railroad from Damascus to Mecca. They also began to build a railroad going into Jeddah as well. And this didn't sit well with the camel merchants because this would put them out of business. It shows you just how people think sometimes. It's not just these Arab merchants who think like that. People in all times and place think about how cab drivers are being um, are really upset about the emergence of Uber. New technology sometimes is very hard for sometimes is a threat to people who make their living off of older technology. And so these camel merchants, they were really upset about the uh, young Turks creating this railroad track from Mecca to Jeddah. And in, in the same theme of, increase, of trying to increase their control over the Hejaz, the young Turk government had also expanded the telegraph region, the telegraph network in the region, so that they had to call down into Mecca, or they had to send a message down into Mecca. It wouldn't, once again, wouldn't take weeks going by horseback or camelback. So the young Turks were one problem that Sharif Hussein ibn Ali had to worry about. Another thing he had to worry about was this growing Arab nationalism in the Hejaz. We had mentioned it in the last episode that um, in the late uh, 19th century and early, early 20th century, uh, a growing feeling, a growing idea of Arab nationalism was starting to, started to, take, to take hold and it was beginning to be a problem. Now, much of this was a response to the young Turk, uh, Turkish nationalism. But some of it was also just these Arabs going to study in Western universities and bringing those ideas down into the Muslim world. So this had led to the upgrowth of various secret Arab societies and cultural organizations that had previously been based in Damascus. Many of them had now infiltrated Mecca itself, and now they were fomenting and and conspiring with the local Arab chieftains, some of them we've already mentioned, 
they were conspiring with local Arab chiefs to revolt against the Ottomans. And so naturally, they invited or spoke with Sharif Hussein Ibn Ali about joining them in this revolt against the Ottomans. But as we mentioned, this is once again before the war broke out. Sharif Hussein was loyal to the Ottoman Caliph, and he was not willing to turn against him. So he refused to join these Arab nationalists and revolting against the Ottoman Empire. And when he did refuse, they did what many people do in similar situations. They labeled him a self-hating Turkish puppet. So Sharif Hussein he now found himself despised by both the Turkish nationalists in the young Turk government and the Arab nationalists in Arabia who were anti-Turks. It's really crazy. War has some strange, does some strange things to people. The thing is that, however, in Sharif Hussein's favor, he had been involved in local politics and Ottoman politics for most of his life. He grew up in the in the uh, Ottoman palace in Istanbul. So he kind of knew how to handle these pol- these politics. He knew how to delay and he knew how to play his enemies off each other. So he hadn't lasted this long by being a fool. So by the beginning of the war, once the war is getting going, he's getting all these entreaties from so many different people to make to try to clarify whose side he was on. He was using every trick in the book to make sure that his position was as ambiguous as an, as as unclear as possible. So he used a lot of the his um, old political tactics to keep his to keep his many enemies at bay and he had quite a few enemies by the way. For one, he had his traditional Arab enemies right there in the Hejaz. He was as we mentioned the Ottoman government was in the practice of choosing an Arab leader to be the Sharif of Mecca. And so there were other Arab leaders in the region who wanted his position, who weren't nationalists. They weren't Turks. They just wanted his position. And so he had his own traditional rivals in the Hejaz, but he also had these same Arab nationalists who wanted to revolt against the Ottomans. And then he also had the young Turks who were technically his boss, his basically the government that paid him, he had the young Turks in Istanbul who did not trust him and they did not like the fact that he wanted to be more independent and more autonomous. Then he also had the British who weren't necessarily his enemy, but they were going to war with the government that he worked for. So maybe they were kind of like his enemy. And the British, even though he wasn't really worried about them invading Mecca or anything like that. The British controlled the sea at this time, and they could easily blockade the Arabian coast and along the Red Sea and cut off uh, the Hejaz from the rest of the world. And he would be done if he made it known or if he if it seemed that he was going to side with the Ottomans. In addition to all that, he also had Abdul Aziz ibn Saud and the and the growing Saudi state over to the east, which was getting closer and closer. And they had once invaded Mecca, Mecca before. And so he knew that Abdul Aziz ibn Saud had his eyes on Mecca and Medina once again. So Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, he was using every delaying tactic he had in the book against all of these different, all these different enemies that he had. The Ottoman government, the young Turks, they wanted him to supply troops to the war effort. 
the war prevented the war had prevented the young Turks from completing the subway to uh, from Damascus to Mecca. They had started it, but they weren't able to finish it because the war broke out. Nonetheless, they still wanted Sharif Hossein to send troops to help with the war. Sharif Hossein, however, he didn't really trust this idea. He knew or he felt that if he did send troops to, off to fight in Europe, then he suspected that the young Turks might then turn around and send Turkish soldiers to to guard Mecca and Medina, which they probably would want to do anyway. But these Turkish soldiers would come into Mecca and Medina and they would not leave. And then uh, Sharif Hossein would find himself at their mercy. But he didn't let this sentiment be known, of course. He didn't tell the, the young Turks this. Instead, he agreed to send troops to assist in the war. And he asked for the, um, the government in Istanbul to send him money to help raise the troops. But he did not actually send any troops <laughs> to Istanbul. He basically just delayed. He said he agreed, but didn't actually do anything. And then as far as his Arab enemies, and he had quite a few, he actually began to engage them in diplomatic talks and diplomatic conversations. He held talks with the Arab nationalists and he spoke with them about revolting against the Ottomans. He didn't commit to anything. He just talked with them about it. And doing this, this kind of gave the appearance that he was agreeing with them. He was respecting them. He could see their side of the story and he could do all this. This would hopefully put them at bay, but he didn't necessarily commit to anything. He also opened talks with his primary enemy, Abdulaziz ibn Saud. He talked with Abdulaziz ibn Saud about involving Mecca in the Ottoman call for the jihad. He didn't commit to anything. He didn't let any state secrets go. But because he communicated with Ibn Saud, this hopefully, hopefully in his mind at least, this would hopefully put Abdulaziz Ibn Saud from initiating an attack against Mecca. And when Lord Kitchener, the British Secretary of War, sent the message asking him to revolt against the Arab, the, um, asking him to revolt against the Ottoman Caliphate and establish an Arab Caliphate, he essentially responded with a phrase that basically means that sounds like a good idea, but he did not actually take any action in favor of Lord Kitchener's proposal. But not taking action was good enough for the British. The British in Cairo and those in London, they were happy with Sharif Hussein delaying and putting them off. So long as he remained neutral, so long as he didn't actually do anything against the British, that was good enough for them. For the as far as the British were concerned, they kind of felt they could trust Sharif Hussein. They kind of felt he was going to go their way. For one thing. His son, Abdullah, had been advocating and encouraging his father to join the British cause and to join the Arab nationalist cause and rise up against the Ottomans. Abdullah, he was impatient with the young Turks. He did not feel as if the young Turks would ever respect his father. And so he has spent a lot of time in Cairo corresponding with the British and making it easier for them to communicate with Sharif Hussein and making it easier for them to be patient with him. And so the British kind of felt good about Sharif Hussein because his son was right there in Cairo working along with them. Sharif Hussein's other son, Faisal, however, he did not agree with helping the British, and we will eventually come to Faisal's story in a future episode. It should be known, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, 
Abdullah would go on to become the first king of the nation of Jordan, and Faisal would be, go on to become the first king of the nation of Iraq. So the British, they were okay with Sharif Hussein taking his time. They didn't really expect him to immediately rise up against the Ottomans. They knew that they knew that, that wasn't easy for him to do. And for Lord Kitchener's part, he wasn't really anticipating or hoping for any help from the Arabs. He didn't think the Arabs in the Middle East would play a big role in the fighting. He felt the real fighting was going to be in Europe. So he just wanted to make sure that Hussein ibn Ali, Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, was on his side for uh, Lord Kitchener's long-term plans for the Middle East. He had plans for the Middle East after the Ottomans were defeated and after he presumably, because he fully expected to eventually take control of the Middle East and wrest control of the Middle East from the British, I'm sorry, from the Ottomans, Lord Kitchener, he he was putting things in play for after the British won the war. What he did not know was that soon the Middle East would actually become just like now, the Middle East would eventually become a significant player in this war. We will get further into that in the next episode. So here's what's going. Here's what you can expect in the next episode. The Middle East, as it becomes more important, Britain finds itself more and more involved in the region. They had always wanted to stay out of this region, but now, as it seems to be more and more important, they see they have to get deeper into it. We are also going to look at how the Turks fared, how the Ottomans fared militarily in these early stages of the war. So that's going to end it for this episode of the Islamic History Podcast and this bonus episode of the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.